The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Please visit pod617.com to learn about our podcast production services and view our full lineup of shows. This one's for you, Boston. I grew up in a... Uh... Boston's a different city than it was 20 years ago. The hope rises again, and the dream lives on. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. The world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder. This is our f***ing city. Yes, welcome back to Unbuilt Boston. Okay, Jay, you can talk now, all right? So, <laughs> being such a veteran of talking to the media, Jay Carney started talking before the, the show intro was complete. I forgive you. You're my friend. Great. So. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I uh, was born in a log cabin in New Bedford. No, okay, so is that that's true. It really was a log cabin. Well, it was a uh, triple-decker neighborhood. Okay. Uh, grandparents lived down downstairs, and uh, it was a French-Canadian na- neighborhood. So as a toddler, I spoke French fluently. Mm-hmm. Went to a Catholic school, uh, St. Anthony's in the North End. Everything was in French in the morning. English in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So the nuns would say, over la fenêtre in the morning and uh, shut the window in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that's how the French kids learned English and the English kids learned French. And to this day, you you know French? Je ne parle pas. Un petit peu? No. Peut-être? No. 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 You do, well, you... <laughs> um, it's like, I don't speak French. I, the only thing I know in Spanish is yo hablo espanol, which mm-hmm. gets me into problems. <laughs> Um, and uh, but it, it was fun growing up in a very uh, close knit French neighborhood like that. Mm-hmm. Um, from second grade to high school, uh, I went to a different school every year. Uh, we kind of moved around a bit in mm-hmm. Massachusetts, and I've always wondered about what role that might have played in my career choice, in my attitude toward the world, etc. Um, if you're the new kid in school every year, uh, you're going to be teased taunted, bullied, that sort of thing, until it stops. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found two things that would help me. One was a sense of humor, where I could make the bully um, be laughed at by everybody else. And the second thing is, I knew I'd have to fight someone each year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wish I could tell you that I usually won those fights. I didn't. Um, now we're talking about actual fights. This yeah. In schoolyard, we're talking about getting, you know, you have to defend yourself. Sure. But um, what I most remember is being on the ground or being on the floor and the person saying, do you give up? No. And then he hit me a couple more times and he'd say, say, uncle, no. Mm -hmm. And I never would. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd get home that night and my mom would say, what happened to your face? I said, oh, a swinging door hit me more. And then she'd say, what about the other side? Uh, It kept me coming back and um, hit me on the other side. But the next day, I'd walk down the hall, and the bully who had been beating the crap out of me would walk by and do a head nod, and I knew, good. Um, Respect, right? Yep, and yeah. uh, then I was accepted, and everything went fine. And you think that, I can see you're sort of setting me up here for the tale, Jay, that you eventually rose to a position where you relished representing the people that maybe others would not, standing up for the people that maybe nobody else really wanted to. I remember one time uh, I got a call from uh, a governor's chief legal counsel, mm-hmm. and he asked me if I wanted to be the governor's 
first appointment to the Superior Court. Mm -hmm. I said I was honored, and uh, I'd call them the next day, let them know. And I realized um, that, uh, as I told the Chief Legal Counsel, I'd rather be standing next to the person they want to bury under the courthouse than to be the person standing there with the shovel. Why is that? I was taught it from a young age to uh, really believe in fairness for everybody. And I developed an affinity for being with the underdog. I wanted to be uh, the person who everyone else wanted to hate or beat up or make fun of because he was different. He had uh, something unusual or odd. And those were the people I gravitated to um, as friends, as um, people that uh, I wanted to get to know better. Hmm. And I also developed a real um, hatred of abuse of power. And the biggest abuser of power is always the government. And as much as it's bad to be beaten up by someone or uh, made fun of by someone, when it's the government who's oppressing people, that's not right. Um, and so growing up in, in a period of time when there was, a, in my opinion, a lot of abuse of government power, um, I found myself gravitating toward being a lawyer who would defend people against the government. Uh, last week, I went back to my high school. I was invited back to address the student body, uh, the faculty, the administrators, and uh, I told them I was shocked that they would ever have me back at Marion High School. When I addressed the students, I said, I can't believe they would ever have me back here because uh, I was nobody role, nobody's role model in high school. And I told the students, I thought, what am I supposed to say? Is this going to be like a commencement speech? And I, and I told them, I hate commencement speeches. So I began and just told them about things I did in high school um, so that the kids would know if you're not perfect, if you're not meeting expectations of everybody, hey, there's still hope. I told them about when um, I was on the debating team because I was supposed to meet with the debating team. Mm -hmm. And the debating team was fun and certainly helpful if you're going to be a, a criminal defense trial lawyer. You joined the debating team to mainly for the, you hope women would be interested in you for, for that. I, I understand the yeah. kids on the debate team got all the chicks, right? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I told the students about how we um, uh, went to the University of Massachusetts for the state championship in debating because we had done very well. And I told them that, uh, you know, uh, I had made up t-shirts that we were going to wear at some point, but the faculty advisor saw them. Um, they said Marion High School mm -hmm. and then UMass debaters. Um, but there was a printing error. <laughs> you can see where this is going. And uh, it appeared to read Marion High School, you masturbators. <laughs> and the uh, teacher was appalled and took them away from us. Uh, it was a three-day tournament, um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And Saturday night, our coach, who was kind of Belichick in his approach, mm -hmm. told us very seriously that he was in, um, having a curfew. We had to be in bed by 9 p.m. so that we could be wicked sharp Sunday morning. We go, oh, absolutely. Yes, sir. We're going to go. And then I told the team, there's a movie across the street that's going to change our lives. So 
I'll come get you at 10 of 11 and we'll go watch the movie. Who will know? This, this is your plan. This was my plan. This is an inspiration movie. Yeah, I thought it would be, you know, important for us to see it. And, uh, you know, Marion High School, very conservative Catholic mm -hmm. high school. This movie was about smoking dope, dropping LSD, free sex, had Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper. Um, and uh, anyway, we come out of the movie. You're from, talking about Easy Rider, I We're presume. talking about Easy Rider. All right, go ahead. And uh, walking <laughs> across the street, and there's a cruiser in front of the hotel and all the faculty advisors for all the teams are wandering around looking for us and the coach said to me jay i know you're behind this um you're going to be lucky if you're not if you're only suspended for the rest of the term mm -hmm. i said okay whatever the next day the coach met with us when the competition was done and said no one is to say a word about what happened last night nothing do not say anything do I understand I guess he thought it might have taken a little bit of the shine off the trophy we won for winning the state championship <laughs> congratulations so I, I told this to the students and yeah. um, you know I guess they were expecting a role model but realized they didn't have one well it was just a movie right you weren't necessarily doing all the things that Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper did in the movie yes not up to then <laughs> <laughs> I, I so, told them how so, on Fridays I would, senior year, I would skip every other Friday. I used to have to take a bus to school, a public bus, stop at Frumpingham Center. Then I'd switch to another bus. But what I would do is look at the uh, driver up front. I was usually the only kid on the bus. I'd point straight ahead. He'd shake his head and start laughing, and I'd drive into Boston. Mm -hmm. And I'd spend the day going to head shops like Truk or George's Folly. Mm -hmm. um, I had a beaded curtain in my bedroom. It was a national holiday any time a Beatles album came out. and uh, But I would always be back in time for sports. And I remember this friend of mine would say, Hey, Jay, where were you today? I was in class. He said, No, no, I sit behind you in three classes. You weren't there. I was there. And, uh, you know, I might miss school, but I'd never miss sports. So you mentioned... Um sort of the, the spirit of which you, you came into being a, a criminal defense lawyer and, and, and standing up for those who need it most. T to me, um, one of the things that continues to be mis misunderstood by most people is the real role of a, a criminal defense lawyer. In other words, there are people who can't get around. If you know this guy did it, or girl, they, they did it. I mean, they did it. And, and, and let's call a spade a spade. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of clients who came to you and say, Jay, yeah, sure, I did those things. So why still are you, are you, do you stand up for someone rather than, you know, trying to work with the government and say, well, yeah, I, I got to tell you, you know, Mr. Prosecutor, my client did it, so let's figure out the best way to punish him. Why do you do it? I love the work I do. It's an urban myth that... A client comes up to you and says, Jay, I did it. Now get me found not guilty. So they usually don't say that? Uh, I was with two of my closest friends who are criminal defense lawyers. We had over 105 years of combined experience. And I asked them, has anyone ever done that to you? And they laughed. And they said, no, never. And I said, <laughs> me neither. What happens is either a client comes in and says, um, it appears that um, I did have too much to drink at my brother's wedding and I shouldn't have been driving and am I going to go to jail? Mm -hmm. And so you help a person 
uh, by assuring him or her that you'll try to get the fairest sentence. If someone comes to you and says, I didn't do it, sometimes early in my career, I would internally kind of snort and say, sure, I've seen this evidence. But there have been um, a dozen times in my career where someone told me they didn't do it. And I believed that they did. And then to my shame and regret, it turned out they were 100% innocent. Really? And you know, the, the stories can sound crazy. Mm-hmm. It'll, it, you can't believe it. I remember one time I was representing a, a woman charged with taking a razor and slashing the backside of a guy. The facts were this woman, who kind of looked like a, uh, well, we, we, we'd call her a, in the old days a big-boned woman. Mm-hmm. She could have been in the Chicago Hall of Fame linebacker right. core. Uh, yeah. she, she was um, uh, a tough woman, too. Mm-hmm. Well, she was walking with her diminutive boyfriend, and uh, coming in the other direction was someone who was in, had a beef with the boyfriend. The two of them started fighting, and the other guy said while he was on the ground, um, my client took out a razor and ribboned the back of his shirt, just shredding him. And then when he got off uh, her boyfriend, the two of them walked away. Mm. I asked her what happened. I said, did you do this? She said, no. I said, what, well, what happened? She said, a car stopped going by. A guy jumped out when he saw my boyfriend was involved in a fight. He ran up to the other guy, ribboned him with a razor, jumped back in the car, and drove away. I said, do you have any idea who this is? No. That's your story? That's what happened. <laughs> okay. I said, sure. Yeah, that's likely. Um, but um, one Friday afternoon, I went into the neighborhood near the intersection in Chelsea where this happened. And I saw there were a couple of bars in the neighborhood. So I went in. It was 3.30 about the time the incident happened. I said, hey, did anyone happen to see an incident on across the street a couple of weeks ago? Uh, fighting. And uh, this guy said to me, yeah, I did. I remember. I said, what did you see? Oh, these people. Someone yelled, fight. I went out to the door I was watching. I saw a car stop. And a guy jumped out had a razor in his hand and went and started slashing at the guy and then got back in the car and drove away. I said, sure, how long have you been here, pal? He says, since about 9.30. I said, okay, great. So I go to the other bar. I try the same thing. Two, two old guys are sitting there and say, absolutely. That's exactly what happened. I remember the glint of the razor shining. And uh, I said, wow, now how could I possibly tie this in? Well, I happened to be sitting in the Chelsea court one day, and I saw a guy being arraigned for uh, cutting someone with a razor, the kind of straight razor that an old barber would use. And so got his name, got his picture, got the next date he was going to be in court, and I asked the three guys who had been in the two bars to come sit in the court. And when this guy came in for the hearing, they looked at me and nodded. That's the guy. Then I tried to find out more. Well, my client had no idea who he was. But when I asked her boyfriend, she said, that guy, he's dating my sister. (laughs) And so what had obviously happened is he was driving by, he saw his girlfriend's brother getting beaten up badly. He stopped the car, took his razor, cut the guy up, got back in the car and drove away. Mm. And that evidence was presented to the jury and they came back quickly 
not guilty. Wow. I could tell you a dozen other stories. Well, I get one. But, you know, for me, um, now, if a client says, I didn't do it, I'm going to be your lawyer and I will fight like heck to prove it. One of the other ones, and and I I fear that this is going to be a a case that we we can't cover in brief, but let's attempt it anyway. You you once, uh, Jay, you and I sat and we had lunch and you told me this story of uh, your client who's now deceased, I believe, uh, who went by the name of Harry O, right? Harry O'Sullivan. Harry O'Sullivan, and um, was a similar case. Now, this was a murder case, if I'm not mistaken, and it, but it was a similar strange case of mistaken identity, when I wonder if, if when he came to you in the first place. Actually, let me back up, because you actually, this is rare, you picked this up after he had already been incarcerated, right? He was convicted of first-degree right. murder. Yeah. It was a Fall River case. Right. And... Uh, the, uh, the public defender had obtained a new trial for him. Yeah. And I remember she called me and said, Jay, I wonder if you would agree to represent this guy. I said, okay. She said, I really, truly believe he's innocent. And I told her, oh, so this is a no-pressure case, Jane. People often ask me, how do I sleep knowing that my clients are guilty? Yeah. I sleep fine about those people. Mm-hmm. It's the innocent people that I represent that to this day, most recently, last night, lead me to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and can only be thinking about my client and have I done everything I possibly can Mm. to prepare the case. Well, so I met Harry O and uh, I started from scratch. And it wasn't a case of mistaken identity. It was a case of police misconduct. Mm -hmm. They had brought a woman in who they believed, uh, who they knew had seen the victim with the perpetrator of the murder and believed that she was covering it up by not admitting Harry Sullivan was the person who had been with the victim. And she insisted she hadn't been. And they kept berating her. And then finally, a woman walked into the interrogation room and the detective said, where are you from? DSS, the Department of Social Services. Why are you here? Because if she continues to lie to you, we're going to take away her children. Mm-hmm. The woman broke down crying um, and said, okay, uh, the person I saw was Harry Sullivan. That what, was her cue to, to finger this guy, even though he wasn't the guy. What was he wearing? How do I know? You saw him. Oh, right, right, right. Wasn't he wearing, and they described clothing? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, the woman later um, told the public defender, I had been, I lied because I was so pressured. And um, the lawyer asked her, was it being recorded at all? She said, yeah, he had a little cassette tape recorder there, which had never turned up. Uh, The lawyer went with the prosecutor to the cop and said, did you tape that interview? He said, sure. She said, did you ever give us the, uh, give the DA the tape? No, it's just for helping me write a report. Do you still have it? He said, sure. He opens his desk drawer, and there are like several dozen cassette tapes there of interviews he's This done. is after he's already been tried yes. and convicted. Right. And uh, they, he rummages through the drawer, finds the recording, and honest to God, it's exactly as I've just described it. And uh, Eventually. The, uh, at the trial, um, of course, that tape is played, and um, people are appalled. And the woman comes in and says, that's the only reason I said it was Harry. Hmm. And uh, 
an interesting thing happened that's only happened one other time in my career. I'm close to now 200 superior court and federal court um, criminal trials to a, a verdict. Do you get a gold watch for that or anything? Oh, I no, got I, issue, yeah. this is my this was my gold watch in the Harry Sullivan case. Yeah. Um, he uh, as the jurors were walking out one by one, they went up to Harry and they shook his hand and said, "Good luck, son." Isn't that and that? was all I needed. I'll tell you one other story about it. Wait, hold, hold on, Jim, okay. before, because there's an epilogue on the Harry O, and then we're going to take a quick break and come right back. But, sure. but the, I remember my favorite part of that story was, this was a guy who, uh, I mean, I may be exaggerating, didn't have much of a life. He was, he was known as a little bit of a low life. He dabbled in drugs or whatever. But he didn't do that. And you got him off, and you gave him a life, and he's since passed away. But do you remember what you told me about how he celebrated his his victory in court and how he gave you a call late one night asking to uh, a little bit of cash? After Harry was exonerated, <laughs> I sued the Fall River Police and the city um, and um, a federal court case and got a settlement, a very, very handsome settlement. Mm more money than Harry Sullivan would ever have made in his entire life. And uh, we were supposed to sign the papers in the federal court one morning. And I said, Harry, how about this? Why don't you take a bus to Boston? I'll put you up in a Marriott Hotel uh, downtown on the waterfront and uh, or some other Marriott that was down near there. And I said, the next morning, you know, you can come in and sign the paperwork and you know, we'll get it out of the way quickly. And Harry says, hey, that's great. And I said, and I'll, It'll be on me that you're in the hotel. I'll pay for it. I'll cover everything, your meals. He says, great. So uh, it's about 5.30 in the afternoon. I get a call from Harry. I think he's had a couple of pops. <laughs> he says, Jay, I'm at the hotel. I wonder if you can do me a favor. I said, sure, Harry. What? I wonder if you, I can borrow some money. I said, Harry, uh, the hotel's paid for. All the meals in the place are paid for. You know, you're all set. What do you need money for? Uh I just need some money, Jay. And I said, okay, uh, how much? He said, hold on, how much? <laughs> and you hear a woman's voice in the background says, $150. And I go, Harry? He says, Jay, please, just $150. I said, okay, no one finds out about this. And he goes, oh, I promise. And I go to my secretary and I said, do we have any blank envelopes without my name on it? Do we have 200, uh, do we have 150 bucks, actually 200 bucks in petty cash? She said, uh, what should I put in the book? Nothing, charitable donation. And so I send the money over to Harry and the next morning I see him at the federal courthouse. I say, hey, Harry, how was it? He goes, you really want to know? No, I don't want to know anything. And he came in, signed the papers, and uh, Harry was a very rich man. Let's take a break. We'll have more from Jay Carney on the other end. Stay with us. Oh, no. Uh, license and registration, please, sir. What's the problem, officer? Uh, well, son, lots of problems. You were, you were doing 115 miles an hour in a 35 zone. You have a blown tail light and a blown headlight. Uh, about a mile back there on the road, you ran over a whole family of deer uh, and some very cute bunnies. You appear to have several kinds of illegal explosive drugs and firearms in the back seat, not to mention 
There's a 300-pound bearded man who's bound and gagged back there for some reason. What do you have to say for yourself, son? Uh, if you log on to pod617.com, you can listen to some great podcasts and produce one of your own. Pod617.com, huh? Okay. Have a nice day, sir. At pod617.com, you'll find on-demand podcasts on politics, sports, music, and amazing storytelling. And pod617.com will produce a broadcast-quality show for you to promote your business or professional service. Listen to the voices of your city and join the community. Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Oh, uh, you know what? I changed my mind. You're under arrest. Aw. Hello? All right, please put them through. Sure. Thanks for calling. Uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. Sure. The first is that you've told me since the very first day I've met you that you've never been an informant. That's correct. Does that mean you've never been an informant in your entire life? Never. As a teenager, I took many a beating at the police stations, and I never cracked. As a bank robber, I was captured. I pled guilty to free the girlfriend that I was with, and I got a 20-year prison sentence, first offender. In prison, I was part of an escape plot. The plot fell apart. One of the guys gave my name. I told him, I don't know what you're talking about. I spent months in the hole, naked, and the whole thing. I went through a lot there, and after four months for punishment, they sent me to Alcatraz, and that was it. I never, never, never cracked. In the Boston FBI, no way. I met John Connolly, who was a salty guy, Irish Catholic like myself. You know, it's friendship. Jeez, if I ever hear anything, I'll tip you off, uh, give you a heads up. And then I tell, all right, John. I says, I'll see you. You can let me know. I appreciate it. And that's how it gets started. This isn't really a typical criminal trial. James Bulger knows that by following the strategy he has directed us to do, he will be found guilty, and he's going to die behind the walls of a prison. But for Jim, it doesn't matter. He's at the end of his life. He doesn't know if he'll live till the end of the trial, never mind till the end of the year. But for him, it's like it's his last opportunity to tell people that he was never an informant, that our federal government is more corrupt in law enforcement than anyone ever imagined, even to this day in this trial, it's corrupt. And he wants people to know it. So, Jay, we're back here with Jay Carney on Unbillable Boston and just listening to that clip. So, Jay, that is a that is a clip from a CNN documentary, which, by the way, available on Netflix. I just watched it the other day. And... Um, you were just mentioning to me as we were listening to it something about the production of that documentary and the, and the way it was put together. But go ahead, share with me what you, what you said. The federal government is frightened to allow Jim Bulger to tell the truth about what happened. He was uh, the head of organized crime in Boston for 25 years. Uh, the federal government uh, in the uh, Department of Justice and U.S. Attorney are charged with uh, prosecuting him for that role. And during 25 years, he never got so much as a parking ticket. Mm. And um, they're terrified that he would give his side of explaining how that happened. He was never an informant. He had everybody on his payroll uh, who was with the FBI, the DEA, um, customs, state police, local police. 
and he had an arrangement with the uh, chief of the organized crime strike force. Um, but the true reflection of that was not just that the federal government did everything to prevent Bulger from being able to testify at trial about the truth. They would not even let any person from the media interview him. Mm. Uh, certainly not on tape, on camera, or uh, audio. And um, so one day um, I was speaking to the director of the documentary and he said, is there any way that I can you know, get anything from Jim? And I said, sure. I'll speak to Jim about having him call me one day. And, um, um, and if Jim's okay with it, you can record the conversation and film me talking to him. And that way, you'll be the only media that has Jim Bulger talking about uh, important issues in the case. So I went to see Jim at the jail and I broached this plan to him. And he said, wow, yeah, sure. You think I should do it? I said, it's up to you, like all big decisions. And he said, I'll do it. So I went back to the uh, producer and I said, okay, what questions do you want to ask him? He gave me the 85 questions that he wanted to ask Bulger and I said, look, realistically, we're not going to have more than 20 minutes. So um, give me the top 10. And uh, so I took the top 10. I went down to Jim. I gave them to him. I said, now, Jim, you're only going to have 60 seconds to answer each of these questions. He said, got it. I said, you're going to need to practice. He said, I will. And so I gave him the 10 questions that I had distilled it down to with the producer. And Jim said, I'll work on it. Next time I go to see him, he's like a kid getting ready to do a um, presentation in front of a high school class. He said, I've really been working on it, Jay. I'm very close to 60 minutes, 60 <laughs> seconds for every answer. I said, Jim, that's terrific. And he said, do you want to hear some of them? And I said, sure. And I'm looking at my watch, I'm timing them, and he's mm -hmm. coming out about 55 seconds, maybe... 70 seconds, and um, he was really taking it seriously. So this when we, we did the clip, he's pretty good. He's <laughs> under 60 seconds, just like I asked him. This, you're one of the most accomplished criminal defense lawyers in the, the country, I would suggest, and here you are uh, giving some uh, media training 101 to a guy who is known as one of the most uh, notorious criminals in the state. You probably didn't see that coming when you were in law school. Um, I didn't. I, um, when I was 14 years old um, in high school, I had a teacher who um, asked every member of the class to do an essay about what they wanted to do when they uh, grew up. What would be their career? Well, this was in the 60s. So the boys uh, would write, I want to be an airline pilot, or I want to be a major league baseball player. The girls, uh, this was about four or five years before feminism hit, they would write, I want to be a stewardess, or I want to be married to a Major League Baseball player. Well, this teacher uh, was in an airport once watching CNN, and I happened to be on, and he said, hey, that's one of my former students. He pulled my essay. At 14 years old, I wanted to be a criminal there... defense lawyer. <laughs> that's great. In fact, I, I put <laughs> the story true. in there, excuse me, that um, I wanted uh, to have a very rich person come to see me and say, I want to hire you. Yeah, that <laughs> and I would say to him, do you have any money? I have got, I'm a multimillionaire. I can pay any fee. Well, and I'm sorry. I'm not going to be your lawyer. I'm a public defender. And I look back 
And I go, boy, that was naive. <laughs> and I've certainly, I've certainly changed my view now on, on whether I should represent that type of client. Thank goodness. Uh, those yes. of you who are listening, uh, I, I do take those clients now who are multimillionaires. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. I look back and uh, my naivete um, combined with my sincere belief that that is really what I was meant to do. Mm. Um, it allows me to say now, I have lived my dream far beyond anything I would ever have expected. Um, I was in two different courts today fighting like heck on behalf of clients. That's what I want to do. I was at the office till 10 p.m. last night. We know you were ready. fighting today because you were late great. showing up. Thanks a lot. But for a good, yeah. very good reason. Um, but so let's go back to Bulger. Well, judge, one of the judges said, so Mr. Carney, you've scheduled this for today. We're supposed to drop everything before mm. you want it. And I told him, Your Honor, I admit it can be judicially noticed that I'm a diva. <laughs> but I scheduled it for 2 o'clock mm -hmm. so that everybody else whose cases were scheduled today could have their cases heard before me. Mm. So I don't think it's fair for you to say that I'm trying to cut in line. <laughs> <laughs> so you always have a wonderful way of doing that, and you'll pardon me if I giggle when you're quoted on camera going over the top commending the, the judge for how intelligent and reasonable and, and uh, uh, you know, particularly shrewd they were in a particular decision, because I've heard you say that many times. Well, you know, when I drop a piece of bread, uh, buttered toast on the floor, it, uh, it lands butter up. Always, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so take us take us back. The, uh, time does not permit us to cover everything that we could ask you about the Bulger case. But take us back to the the first day when you were representing him. Tell us what would that, tell us what that was like. Here's the process that was followed, and to this day, I don't know why I was selected. Mm -hmm. um, a lawyer in Boston was designated to call around to criminal defense lawyers, whom the court may have thought were qualified to handle a case like this, and ask us. Um, would you be available to take the case? Do you have an interest? Do you, are you conflicted out or what? And I said I'd have to call back the next day because mm -hmm. I wanted to speak to my family first. And uh, asked my wife. Uh, she rolled her eyes up, and uh, uh, that's her universal symbol for, okay. Here we go again. Yeah. Uh, I asked uh, my son. He said, whatever. That's his sign of approval. And I asked my daughter. She said, that's great, Dad. Then you can write a book. <laughs> and uh, make money and and I said yes and we'll, I'll entitle the book How I Bought a Cape House she said perfect dad um, and so this is a, to be clear this is, for those that don't know this is a court appointed yes court appointed oh, okay and so does that mean the not to boil it down so far but does that mean the rate is, is fixed or do you set the rate or for, for the defendant to pay you or um, well to handle uh, Bulger um the court-appointed rate was 15% of my normal hourly rate. Is that right? Okay. And I remember um, talking to someone uh, about this because the person said, uh, boy, this, this must be a really great lucrative case or yeah. something like that. And I said, well, you know, you look around in the courtroom, the uh, prosecutors are getting paid their normal salary. So is the judge. The probation officer is. The clerk is getting paid. All the experts are getting paid their money. The... Uh, um, uh, federal agents who are testifying, they get all their money, and the only people who aren't getting paid their money are the criminal defense lawyers. 
were getting paid 15%, or at least I was, what the normal hourly rate is. And so the idea that um, lawyers don't make a sacrifice to take court-appointed cases is false. Right. There are hundreds, indeed thousands of lawyers in Massachusetts who accept court-appointed court appointments in criminal cases and get a fraction of what they would make from their private clients. But like my colleagues who do this, we do it voluntarily. We believe that it's important as criminal defense lawyers to represent indigent clients and very often pro bono clients. We became criminal defense lawyers because we want to help these people in a jam and we pay a financial price very often for it. So on the, on the CNN documentary, there's a clip at one point that shows the, the most wanted by the FBI and, and this is going back a few years, but and number one was Osama bin Laden and number two was James Whitey Bulger. So you sat with Whitey Bulger for hours and hours. You got to spend time with him, one of the most notorious uh, you know, accused criminals in, in the history of this country, perhaps. So tell us what he was like. Well, um, I spent a lot of time in South Boston uh, because I lived nearby uh, with my wife. And uh, when we had kids, I'd go to Castle Island um, every Sunday and stroll around with the kids, play with them in the playground. And I realized that uh, Jim Bulger was walking around there at the same time, although I didn't know him. I knew his two brothers. Mm. Uh, when I was appointed to represent him, it was the very first time I ever met him. And I remember when I walked into the courtroom um, to accept the appointment um, and looked at him, I realized that without my glasses, I actually looked kind of just like him. <laughs> yeah. His booking so, photo, at least. And, uh, you know, so I'm, for I'm our bald. listening audience, Jay yeah. just took out, off his, his lawyerly glasses. His trademark and, glasses. And yeah. there is a little bit of a resemblance. And so I'm standing there having just met him. Is that a white Red Sox hat on? Yeah. yeah no. with I, shook his, I shook his hand and I said, I'm Jay Carney. I'm very uh, pleased to represent you on this case. And the first thought that popped in my mind is, holy mackerel. I hope he doesn't tie me up sometime at a visit in the prison and make me trade clothes and walk out of the prison wearing my suit and my glasses. And they, they come in later and they find me tied up in an orange jumpsuit. This, is, I said, this focus, is the plot focus. of a, of a okay. Jerry Bruckenheimer movie. I think. Honest yeah. to God, focus, yeah. just right. focus. Yeah. And uh, I remember when I left the courtroom, uh, you know, 25 uh, cameras out front and I'm trying to act with great gravitas. I said, Connie, how... Uh, What's it like to have the biggest case you'll have in your entire career? My career is not over. Okay, uh, and what about uh, how are you going to approach this case? Like I do every single case. I'll find out where the truth lies and I'll present it to a jury. You know, And then, then I leave and I'm driving down to see Bulger. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit of an excitable boy at this point. I get pulled over by the state police. Trooper comes up and says, In a hurry, Mr. Canny? I, he recognized you right away. Um, well, yeah. I may not know every, I may not <laughs> you know, know every cop that. in Massachusetts, but every cop and trooper knows me and, <laughs> right. um, just by virtue of we're in the same business and I'm just sure. on TV more than them. Right. And, uh, the trooper said, you know, in a hurry. And I told him, I've just been uh, appointed to represent Whitey Bulger. <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> I've just been appointed to represent Whitey. I'm going to see Whitey Bulger. I'm going to be his lawyer. He goes, 
Mr. Carney, you have more problems than a speeding ticket. <laughs> <laughs> and he let me go. And, uh, you can try that next time well, you get pulled over. Yeah, yeah but, no. Um, you can only use it once, though. Yeah. I did. I, I spent hundreds of hours sitting talking to Jim Bulger. And um, he was a very fascinating guy. Uh, he was extremely intelligent, uh, like his younger brothers, as people know, mm -hmm. know them better, perhaps. Uh, he was very well read, particularly in biographies and uh, history. Um, he could be a great Irish storyteller, um, although sometimes his stories ended with a bang. Uh, <laughs> oh, he could be very loving. I've heard, yes. He'd be very loving mm -hmm. toward uh, his girlfriend, Catherine. And um, no, he, so he would tell he would tell you stories about misdeeds of his past. I know. I remember sitting with him, and uh, I had the uh, indictment, mm -hmm. and I'm going down the list of murders. You know, to start, and I asked him about the first. Uh, the first murder is of this guy, uh, and he said, "You know, if you took a poll in South Boston, <laughs> they'd be in favor of killing that POS." <laughs> and so I write down, "Okay, uh, defense, uh, public service." <laughs> then um, the uh, I asked him about the second one, and he said, "Well, technically, I didn't kill him." And I said, "Oh." How was that? He said, well, Jim, Stevie Fleming and I went to kill him. And then I reached into my pocket, but I was wearing new pants and my gun got caught in the pocket. And uh, Stevie said, oh, for crying out loud, took out his gun and killed the guy. So had I got the gun out, I would have been able to kill him. So, um, okay. Yeah, so that was me. Yeah. And I write down, uh, gun in pocket. Uh, did he really not want to pull it out? Okay. Get to the third one, he starts laughing. <laughs> And, I, and he says, when you hear this story, I go into the bar, <laughs> oh I call the guy out, He's, he says, what do you want to tell me, Whitey? I want to tell you this, you're dead, bow, oh my one God. to the head. <laughs> you should have seen the look on his face. I'm going, okay, <laughs> come back to this one for the defense. <laughs> then I ask him about the fourth one, and he, you know, he says, I didn't know about that one until four days after the guy was dead. Hmm. I had nothing to do with that one. Okay, so, you know, he was remarkably candid as a client. And, um, you know, didn't hold back. He was, uh, I mean, w what his view was is he had the greatest run of an organized crime figure in Boston who had ever, ever been in existence. 25 years. I mean, he made millions and millions of dollars every year. And then um, when he finally was indicted, he went on vacation for 16 years with his girlfriend mm -hmm. and lived a pretty good life in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. He expected he would die in a hail of bullets or on a gurney being injected with the death penalty drugs sure. or at the best, die in prison. Yeah. And by the time he got caught, um, he had lived a good life in his view. Mm -hmm. Well. We're going to have to wrap up, Jay. I think we're going to have to have him back, guys. Yeah, really? Absolutely. I mean, um, just, I guess as a final thought, um, in listening to that clip from the CNN piece and how the whole trial went, I remember being in um, trial ad in, in law school, and they said it's all about the story of the, the, either the theory of the case or your story that you want to tell for the case. 
And it seemed to me, you correct me if I'm wrong, I want to hear what you have to say, of course, but th that the story was he did a lot of bad things, but he was never an informant. And that seemed to be the message that, you know, procedure be damned, the message that came out of that trial. And you're sitting here, so I, I, maybe I'm patting you on the back, but it seemed like your message was consistent, and that, in fact, was the result of the trial. Is that Am I interpreting that correctly? You are. Um, but that wasn't supposed to be the message. Uh, the message of the trial was supposed to be to reveal to people the corruption in the federal government that allowed Bulger to be on top for 25 years um, with never being charged with anything. Mm. And what was interesting is we were fighting to allow the deal Bulger made with the head of organized crime, the attorney in the, in the uh, Department of Justice, um, that would permit Bulger to continue operating as he did and not be charged federally. Right. Uh, the person made it clear that he could be charged in state court where more than 99% of murders are prosecuted, but as long as he kept up his end of the bargain, then for what he was going to do, um, he would not be prosecuted federally. I remember that um, I was planning um, in closing argument to have a chat and say, okay, I've called the person who was the head of the criminal bureau in the first half of the 80s, who is now a federal judge, and the person who was the head of the criminal bureau in the second half of the 80s, who at the time of the trial was the head of the FBI, and a person who was the U.S. attorney for a good part of the 80s, who later became a Massachusetts governor. And I'd have my chat in front of the jury, and I'd say, okay, what are the reasons why Bulger was not prosecuted by these men? Number one, they're incompetent. Well, I'd draw a red line through that and say these are three of the most accomplished men in Massachusetts legal history. Number two, they were paid off. Absolutely not. These are men of unimpeachable integrity. They wouldn't take a nickel any more than they would take $5 million. So I draw a red line through that. Next, they didn't know Bulger was head of organized crime in Boston. Well, I would have presented 400 books, articles, documentaries, newspapers, stories about usually the Bulger brothers. One is the uh, Senate president. The other one is head of organized crime. So obviously, it's not that they didn't know he was that. And I'd draw a red line through that. And then I'd say, Sherlock Holmes would say, when the probable is impossible, then you look to the improbable. And the fourth reason was they respected the deal that the head of the organized crime strike force had made with Bulger. And that would have been the heart of the case. Mm. I wouldn't be trying to convince 12 people. I'd be trying to convince one person. Mm -hmm. Because if one person said that he had a reasonable doubt, or she had a reasonable doubt, about whether the government made this deal with him, then they would not get a conviction. Mm. And that would have been the only time Jim Bulger ever would be put to trial. Mm. Well, J listen, Jay, we thank you for being so candid and filling in a lot of the gaps because I learned a lot about this case that I had never heard before. And uh, Jay, listen, you're a friend. We want to have you back because there are several cases of yours that we didn't even have a chance to discuss. Well, we thank you. Thank you for being a guest on Unbillable Boston, my friend. Thank Will you. Will you come back? Maybe. Well, I now know your uh, tricks. 
um, when I said, what are you going to ask me about? Uh, you sent me an email and you listed uh, the 10 questions that you would definitely ask. Uh, perhaps the next time I come by, you'll ask at I least, asked none of you'll them. You'll ask yes. at least one of them. You'll discharge. Thank you. Do you dare enter Monsterland? You may not know that some 50 miles west of Boston sits what may be one of the most diverse and comprehensive paranormal locations in the world. If you listen to the Monsterland podcast, the secrets will be revealed to you. I'm Maddie Blake, actor, TV host, and believer, and I'm fortunate to be co-hosting the show with the author of the book known as Monsterland, Ronnie LeBlanc. Thanks, Maddie. Well, you said it. We're practically next door to the Lemster State Forest, a place that's had decades-long list of strange phenomena, including UFOs, paranormal activity, Bigfoot, strange sightings, occult, and military activity. Absolutely. And Ronnie, on the Monsterland podcast, we'll be joined by a murderer's row of experts from all over the world to finally figure out if these claims belong in the myth or Monsterland files. So make sure you listen, binge, and believe as each chapter of our mysterious journey unfolds. You can find the Monsterland podcast on pod617.com, the mighty pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Join the passionate fans who we're already hearing from. See you soon in Monsterland.